Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and this week I'm joined by Michaela Hall from Agora Energy Vendor. Hi Michaela, are you well? Can you believe it's our 25th podcast together and it's one year since our first podcast has been launched? It feels much more, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it exciting. Um, feels good. And how much has happened in that year as well? How much has happened in that year to us, you mean, or in energy policy? Well, both. Absolutely. <laughs> We've tried to keep up. Indeed. There was a lot to talk about and there's a lot to talk about, right? Absolutely. No, no sign of slowing down just yet. Sadly, Jan Rosenau uh, can't be with us today. Uh, he's feeling a little bit under the weather, so we wish him all the best and hopefully he'll join us next time. Our guest this week on our special anniversary episode is Energy Podcast Royalty. She is also co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions, a public policy firm focused on clean energy and innovation, and co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Clean Electrification, and a former member of the Energy Gang podcast. It's Catherine Hamilton. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on What Matters. Before we really jump into today's conversation, I'd be interested to hear your reflections on your time as a podcaster and the value it holds in the energy transition. Thank you so much for having me on, Mikhail and David. This is so exciting for me. And you think a year feels like a long time? Try eight years. <laughs> um, that's how long I was I was uh, with the original Energy Gang. And interestingly, when I started, of course, I didn't even know what a podcast was. I asked them what I was supposed to wear. And uh, they said, this is an audio medium. <laughs> Luckily, you can wear whatever you want. Um, so that was the best news I had heard. But it, it really was incredible to me because here you are taping in a vacuum. You're taping with a couple of people. And in the in the case of the original Energy Gang, it was Jigger Shaw and Stephen Lacey and myself. And we were like three friends sitting in a bar chatting about clean energy. What we didn't realize, of course, what I didn't realize was that lots and lots of people out in the world were listening and being, I don't know if I would say incentivized, but but becoming interested in what we were talking about. We would talk about a range of topics and you not we wouldn't necessarily go very deep on anyone, but it has been incredible to me to hear from people who've said, I listened to you all along and I learned things or I was inspired to go and study some topic or learn more about that topic. And I just find that podcasts generally are so accessible and they give you perspectives that you would not normally get in your daily life. So I was honored and really um, you know, gave me so much good experience to be on that original Energy Gang. And I haven't stopped podcasting altogether. Stephen Lacey still recruits me occasionally, and certainly I get invited by folks like you, which is a, a big honor too. Well, you must have at least 500 episodes on, you know, uh, ahead of us, basically, in, in terms of experience, Katarin. This is like having the podcast, energy podcast avant-garde here. So uh, very happy, happy about that. 
Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this is our first opportunity on our podcast uh, to discuss the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that was passed uh, in the US recently. Catherine, how big of a deal is the IRA uh, in boosting the US's decarbonization efforts? This is huge, and it has been a long time coming. So we tried to do this back in 2008, 2009. It failed in our U.S. Congress, in the Senate, and we were able to get it over the finish line this year. This year, And it really promises 40% greenhouse gas reductions in the power sector by 2030. It's about $370 billion in total for climate. It really touches every sector of the economy. It includes $60 billion for environmental justice, $60 billion for manufacturing. It's it, the hope is to create 9 million jobs with a real net zero economy goal by 2050. And I think what it does in the context of this conversation is that it really launches us back into international leadership in climate mitigation. Um, if I may pick up on it, 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 it was actually just these weeks that uh, there's a lot, I don't know uh, how, to what extent you're following it, but I mean, there's a lot of political attention these days and Brussels, uh, but also in Berlin and Paris, I would say in particular, uh, on this act. Um, and actually, it is uh, it is uh, at this po- point it is very much seen as a as also as a threat to the industrial base in Europe uh, by some people. Um, and Macron was traveling also to, Fran- uh, to to the U.S. to talk about this topic. And uh, it a little bit culminated last night when basically the EU commissioner for for the industry said he will not be going to the to a summit, an upcoming summit between EU and U.S. where they talk uh, clean technologies, which was scheduled for next week. Uh, because there's not much room to discuss the IRA. So the so Europe feels a bit overtaken by this development and is especially concerned about this the more protectionist elements of it, not a local content provision, etc. Um what would you respond, like you know the content of this law very well. What what would you respond to your to the Europeans? Do you think this this perception is is justified? Is it is it protectionist to be blunt, you know? And uh, what would you recommend then? What the EU should do as a response? Right. Let's. I would like to give you some perspective on this because we have to think about where the U.S. was. We were really behind. We're very good at inventing things, but we had really gotten away from building things. So our manufacturing base had really dwindled down. The poverty in communities that were really organized around one economy, which was coal, just had no jobs. People who had nothing. Uh, People were being left behind. And we are one of the biggest polluters, and we were doing bits and pieces. So we had definitely started to shut down coal. We had started to really move forward on renewables. But from a national perspective, we've been so far behind, really, um, in trying to make real progress. And I think this is all of a sudden, oh, the U.S. is doing something finally. And so now we're getting beaten up over it. But really, this is going to hopefully engage us much more in the ability to provide real carbon reductions in a world that desperately needs that. It should increase the ability for people of all types to have access to clean energy technology. Uh, There there are lots of equity 
uh, provisions in this bill. This provides a 10-year window of certainty for investors. Um, it has a big pollution, uh, methane pollution fee that will cut back on methane emissions. There are so many things that will allow the U.S. to become a much better global neighbor by enacting this law. And I think that the protectionist issues that you mentioned, some of the provisions, which are very much, you would call them by America, I guess, for domestic content, steel, iron, manufacturing products, construction materials needing to be sourced in the U.S. These are all things that were huge industries for the U.S. and just dwindle down to everything being having to be imported. And I think this hopefully will rebalance a bit. I don't think it means that we will not continue to have relations with everybody in the world. We're in a global economy. We're, a, you know, we're in a global air system. We we have to have it. We have this global environmental issue uh, crisis at our hands. And I think what we're trying to do is ride our ship a little bit and say, okay, well, let's figure out what we can do here, how we can help bring jobs to the U.S., how we can help our own economy and be part of the production, which we had not been. So I think I, I think uh, there is a lot of consternation about what will this do to our global relations. But in the end, I think it's going to make us a better neighbor. What are the, um, Michaela, what are the sort of basis for the um, worries within the sort of the European Commission and the European Parliament uh, towards this act? And surely the European Union has in uh, promoted its own sort of protectionist policies in the past as well. I'm, I'm thinking particularly about the um, carbon border adjustment mechanism, uh, which itself is quite a protectionist um, policy. That's a good question. No? Uh, and uh, yeah, no, um, it's interesting that basically what woke Europe up and uh, I would say also Germany and France, so it's always a little bit on both levels. It's complicated here in the EU for us. Um, was actually precisely the protectionist provisions in there, especially for the car industry. I think that that is what woke woke it up. But your, the package, as you just have described it, is is much 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 broader. I mean, you go really into renewables, heat pumps everywhere, and um, yeah, and it's totally true that uh, that basically that the C bomb was a little bit the same way of how can we not. It's, same, no, maybe not, not because this is also really a relaunch of really clean industry, like core uh, capacity. Um, but I said, I, I think that the, the thing is we woke up because uh, of those certain provisions, but I would totally concur with you what you said, Katarina. In the end, this is, I mean, we all need to reduce massive amounts. Uh, we um, we should work together on those things. And, and when we look at the IRA, what, uh, and I think the European Commission is at, a, at the moment considering what else, like if there should be an additional response from the EU side, I think there's plenty of good stuff in there in your proposal uh, that is nothing that is not protectionist, actually. There's plenty of other stuff. And what, what, for example, I always try to highlight, which I think is really smart, is this additional bonus you get if you train and invest into skills. Great. Brilliant. Let's do it. We both need it. We both need people that work on offshore and install a heat pump. Let's go for it. This is brilliant. Um, so I, um, I, I actually have to say... Um, 
this kind of alarm alarm is like now the US is taking over our industry. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't at all agree. Uh, um, and, and, and actually see it more, as you said, we are, we are now, we are willing finally to play our role in this. We were absent for a long time in this. Um, so let's do this together. Uh, I think that's the way to see it. Yeah. And I would just say on the kind of nuts and bolts of the legislation, I completely, uh, agree with you, Michaela, that, you know, there are some big provisions on making sure that steel, iron, et cetera, are from the U.S., but there are also some big outs if it if it increases the cost of overall construction more than 25 percent or if certain materials are not available in quantity or quality. There are all kinds of ways that you can circumvent or not circumvent, but really ensure that you're working with the best folks globally on the critical mineral side, which is phased in over time. So 40% in 2024, up to 80% by the end of 2026. And these are minerals that are extracted and processed in the U.S. or in a country with a free trade agreement with the U.S. So a lot of this depends and actually incentivizes trade agreements or that are recycled yeah. in North America. So there you include Canada uh, as well and Mexico, if you think about critical minerals. And just to get okay. back to what the provisions are, um, you know, we've had a series of pieces of legislation. A year ago, the Infrastructure uh, and Inve- Investment Jobs Act was signed into law. Yeah. That was $1.2 trillion of funding that is just now starting to go out the door. And that is for kind of the foundational technologies, uh, the grants for, you know, grid infrastructure, for transmission, for distribution, for batteries, for you know, smart grid type of technologies. It also is for roads and bridges, but it, yeah. it includes all those foundational technologies. And what the Inflation Reduction Act does is put the market mechanisms and financing tools into place to really scale those because grants will only take you so far. So most of what is in the Inflation Reduction Act is tax incentives. So it's, you know, as you mentioned, heat pumps, uh, traditional renewables, electric vehicles, energy storage for the first time. I've been working on energy storage to try to get it into our tax code since 2009. And now it's in microgrids, interconnection. So often just connecting to the grid makes a project not able to pencil out. Well, that cost is included in a tax incentive, hydrogen. And then as you say, these adders for labor, for apprenticeships, um, and for equity to make sure that communities that have not previously had access to these technologies really get these technologies. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really smartly done. I mean, this this, this social the social, socioeconomic aspects of it. Uh, and there's another thing which I like, which I think we, we can also learn in the EU because we don't do that at the moment, is that you give preferential treatment to the greenest. Like, for example, I remember in the case of hydrogen, only the, the really green, green renewables-based hydrogen gets this super high tax rate that was quoted everywhere that make, basically makes them competitive. Um, and the lesser green, you know, the the ones that you would probably qualify as low carbon, have a lower rate because that's an approach we have not done so far in the EU. Um, I mean, you know, it's much more complicated and that's one of the things that because your program is so easy because it works for every company that can access it directly with a tax credit, right? Um, We have 
all, we have one piece of legislation here in the EU that sets the framework of how to design taxes. No, no, like it, it's a national competence for the member states, but there's a bit of a frame of how you tax diesel, etc. And in that, for example, we specifically treat green and low carbon the same. And we do not differentiate. And I found it interesting that your proposal does make this differentiation indeed and gives a higher rate for better for the better, you know, the ones that are truly net zero compliant. And if I may ask, because you, I mean, it's amazing what all the things that are in there. If you compare the investment needs per sector or per application for the US and the IRA, is it a good match? Like, you know, is everything like is heat pumps, does it get the share of the cake it it would deserve in a bigger picture? Or can you elaborate on that? Or is something missing or over uh, overemphasized? Oh, that's a, that's a super interesting question because right now, for the first few years, it's the, the tax code is actually divided into two sections. In the first few years, it's by technology. So, you know, uh, different solar, wind, storage, microgrids. It's listed by technology, but in it, in a couple of years, it flips to be just a clean energy uh, credit, and you can take it as an investment tax credit, which is you know, you invest in something and then you get the credit, you get paid back for it or a production tax credit, which is say, you know, you produce the clean energy, you get the credit for that. So there are, um, there are a couple of different constructs. And as we move through the 10 years, it does change to much more pegged to uh, carbon reduction. And that's going to be really important because that's going to be what really does get us to our goals that we need to get to. I, I think there are a couple of things that we don't want to lose sight of. One is that um, we we really need to measure this carefully. We need to make sure that the rules are set up in such a way that they can't be gamed, that you really are getting uh, carbon mm. reduction and that you're not just moving things around for accounting purposes. And there are a couple of things that were missing from the bill that the, did not make it in. Uh, one is um, hydropower. Some hydropower credits did not make it in uh, for uh, repairing existing hydro. And there are just so many old dams over here that uh, really it would be so much more useful because it's very expensive to refurbish all these hundred year old blades. And yet they're yeah. perfectly fine. Once they're refurbished, they can go another hundred years. Um, and that's clean energy and you don't want to take that off the grid. So that did not make it in. And the other thing that did not make it in was an investment tax credit for transmission. And uh, right. they're trying to make up for that in a way with a grant program and also with something uh, called the Transmission Facilitation Program, which would essentially allow the U.S. government to be the off-taker of transmission and subscribe to the transmission lines until the line was built and was able to get real off-takers. So th that's kind of an interesting new program. We'll see how it works. Um, mm -hmm. But not having uh, something foundational like transmission is is tough because all of these new clean energy technologies are going to come on the grid and they need to be able to get to where they're needed. So there are a couple of things missing um, in, in the bill and we just kind of have to see how it all shakes out and how we're able to fill in. Okay. Okay. Catherine, um, another thing that perhaps we haven't mentioned as well that I don't know if, if it is missing from the bill or, or, or we just haven't talked about it is any sort of energy efficiency uh, program within the US uh, and in incentivizing those sort of technologies um, or solutions uh, rather than 
building more generation and actually instead kind of reduce the demand and reduce uh, the amount of electricity we need in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. There are lots of tax credits and rebate programs for electrification, for heat pumps, um, for high efficiency homes. A lot of those programs are traditionally run out of the states. And so what what will happen is that the chunk of the funding will be sent through the Department of Energy and in some cases through our Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and then they will be dispersed to state entities to deploy those because they are best position to make sure that communities get what they need. So there is a lot of funding for that, both in the infrastructure bill and in the invest in uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. So there, there will be many, many millions of dollars going to states that really do need to do basic uh, energy efficiency before they even begin to electrify and put solar on the roofs. Like, let's get the uh, you know, get their windows cocked and insulation in so that they can immediately start uh, reducing their their cost. Um, so we've spoken a little bit there about uh, what's in the bill and the, the impact and sort of Europe's response to it. Do you think there's a, any chance then that now, obviously, if the US is matching perhaps uh, Europe's um, climate ambition, that the, the two can perhaps work together uh, and come up with joint solutions into the energy transition. I'm thinking maybe sort of phasing out fossil fuel subsidies as well uh, and trying to get a level playing field uh, for clean energy generators. Yes, I definitely think we can work together. We can learn from each other. Uh, we could take some lessons on implementation uh, and vice versa. A couple of things on coal is that there was more authority put into our loan programs office that is being run by Jigger Shaw, who is my co-host of the original Energy Gang podcast. Um, and what that funding would allow for is replacement of coal plants with other technologies. So it's not shutting down coal in a vacuum, but really saying, all right, we can shut this down and you, as long as you have an alternative that you're bringing in. So for example, you could put in a storage, an energy storage facility uh, instead, or a solar farm in the in the place of a coal-fired power plant. So um, there are provisions to finance that, which I think are really important. That we already have authorization for um, through the loan programs office. Then there was also a national green bank that was um, that's going to be stood up by an environmental protection agency, EPA, and that's $20 billion that would allow for a whole host of other financial instruments that the government cannot do. So it would allow for blended finance, it would allow for minor debt, it would allow for recycling of funds, it would would basically turn 20 billion into 200 billion. It would be able to support green banks in our states. It would be able to build capacity in states that don't already have green banks. And it would be able to finance projects of national significance, like transmission projects, for example, that aren't being able to be built uh, because of the capital expense uh, up front. So I think that um, watching what happens with this national green, green bank, essentially, um, will really kind of feed into, as as a globe, how are we thinking about financial instruments? And I've been following a little bit the Bridgetown Initiative through the COP to try to come up with, like, how do we, how do we really pull in private sector investment um, into not just 
not just paying for repairs uh, from catastrophe, but really to try to invest in more resilient infrastructure, try to um, really bring everybody along in the clean energy transition and allow access uh, to capital and access to all these technologies for countries that have not, um, that have been impacted very negatively. This sounds a little bit like what we were doing, we've, we have been doing already for years in the EU with the InvestEU, like to combine private and public finance and also this idea of leveraging. I think um, <clears throat> I, uh, there actually, I think we would have, there's one question I'm asking because you were talking about coal. And I think on coal, we also had that that was uh, before we had the Ukraine, the second invasion. I mean, we were pretty advanced, I think, in Europe in in the kind of managing the phasing out of coal. Okay, now, uh, as we all know, uh, it's a bit difficult now with the crisis and some coal is coming back, although I think the the main direction of travel should be clear. Uh, But out of curiosity, like, is... Uh, in all this discussion around your IRA and et cetera, the, f- the phasing down of fossil gas, is that a political issue already? And, uh, and also the, you know, like, I don't know, the technical assistance that the communities would need, or is this reflected in your financing needs at all? Is this a discussion? Like, for example, I know you're not as big in district heating. I mean, though it exists in the US, it's not as big a thing as it is in some of the European member states. That, for example, I didn't find anywhere in IA. So where is this whole the changing from gas discussion in the US in this context? Yes, that's a really good question. And it is extremely politically fraught. Uh, the natural gas industry is quite strong. Um Back during the Obama administration, when they lifted the um, export ban on oil and gas, of course, that really changed uh, our gas industry here in the U.S. We have really exploited fracking quite a bit. Um, But, of course, we've also seen really volatile gas prices. Unfortunately, often the industry will will say, oh, let's just double down. (laughs) Let's do more of it. Even though, wait, wait, it's causing all kinds of economic issues. So there's a ways to go on this. Um, There, this is where sometimes the local fights get quite strong because gas requires pipelines and people don't want pipelines in their backyards. They don't want them running through their water systems. Uh, I'm from Appalachia. My brother lives in a place where a pipeline is going to potentially impact his water system. And he's very upset about it. And the people locally are upset. They want to have economic growth. It was originally uh, mostly farms and coal uh, were kind of the two big industries in a lot of Appalachia. And they're, they're still farmers doing great things. But uh, trying to transition from a fossil-centered economy is really tough. You have to not just provide financial tools for that, but you have to really allow communities, people who are impacted by this, to to envision themselves as part of a clean energy future. And we've not done a great job of that. We've not done a great job of really um, including people in these conversations uh, as to what do you want your future to look like? I think IRA has provided an ability to do that. There are dozens of manufacturing plants being proposed in areas that have been very traditionally just based on coal. And 
I think that ensuring that those folks are able to find good jobs, to be able to, you know, have an economy that's organized differently. We we have to give credit to the fact that those people and their their four forefathers and mothers, it was on their shoulders that our industrial revolution was built, right? We we owe them a debt um, to an industry that was incredibly uh, economically lucrative to us and to the rest of the world. And yet that very industry uh, is killing them and the planet. And uh, we have to find a different path and allow them to be part of that. And I think those are things we have to pay very close attention to. You can't just tack that on at the end. You have to really make it a complete part of your plan. And I think that's part of what Ira hopes to do is to really involve those energy communities to make sure that they're part of the future. And I think that speaks to, all right, if we don't want then coal and gas, is there an alternative that we can see as we move forward? But how would it, how would the IRA uh, do this then for a community that wants to decarbonize? How would that work? I thought, uh, like how, like how how would they help them transition it? I thought it was more a typical business tax kind of proposal. So is there more to it? Yes, indeed there is. So there are bonus credits for energy community, building in an energy community. But there are also all of the requirements through the Department of Energy. And this is especially true right now in the infrastructure bill that is rolling out funding. So 20% of the requirement for getting funding for a project requires community engagement. And you have to have a community plan and it can't just be, oh, I talked to you know, such and such and they're good with it. It's not that. This is about, you need letters of support from a community saying, yeah. we want this business to come. We want it to be built here and to have a real plan for workforce development and engaging in a real way, whether it's through their schools, through um, other, you know, through cultural organizations, whatever that is. Because of course you're going to, when you move into a community, you're going to increase their tax base. So that's yeah. good for their economy generally, but you really have to do a lot more. And Department of Energy Energy has put, you know, 20% of the requirement to get any grant is going to be on community engagement, and that's in a real way. Hi, everyone. David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. Is there any uh, provision for retraining uh, and upskilling of, of engineers and workers? Yes, there's quite a bit of funding available for workforce um, and for you know, using existing workforce skills, trying to match skills, right, to to new industries. And I would say, you know, in addition to solar, wind, we can't forget, uh, say, geothermal, which you can take a lot of the skills that were used in the oil and gas industry and pivot to geothermal. And there are new technologies that are really enabling that. Um, you spoke about District Heating, Michaela, and certainly there's that, but there's also other types of closed-loop geothermal that really you could um, you could use as as a replacement for baseload power um, for natural gas that we could certainly exploit and and help on the training side and, and use use skills that that um, workers already have 
Yeah, really interesting. Uh, and that's, I know, something, uh, a big issue also in, in Europe. Um, we mentioned a little bit on sort of the, the, the clean energy investments and clean finance uh, as a result of the IRA. Um, and you mentioned the, the National Green Bank uh, that's being established uh, off the back of it. Um, is the IRA clear in what technologies and what sectors can um, benefit from the tax credits. Um, obviously, the EU has been struggling a little bit uh, with clear definitions uh, that would help guide clean energy investments. Is the US been able to be uh, a bit more um, definite about that? It depends on your definition of definite. So uh, <laughs> it's interesting because the bill, the the IRA had some very strict guidelines as to what it could include because of the because of the political instrument that they used to create it so they it was going to be partisan completely it was only going to be democrats that voted for this bill but in order for that to be true in order for them to use this process called reconciliation they um could not include any policy you could only include taxing and spending. And so the language, while somewhat specific, so they talk a little bit about what is a microinverter or what is a microgrid controller, it's still not specific enough for all investors to feel s- certain and secure. And it couldn't be because of the guidelines under which this bill was written. They couldn't include a lot of very specific policy statements. And I'll give you another example of that, which is in the National Climate Bank. It was originally conceived at $100 billion. It was scaled down to 20, but it was written as 100 or 20 billion, 40% of which would be targeted at low-income and disadvantaged communities. They couldn't put that in this legislation because that is considered a policy. So instead, they had to divvy it up. So they had to say 12 billion for investment and 8 billion for investment in low-income communities. So they had to divide it up into different pots because they couldn't make any policy statements. But what that means is that while there is some specificity on what is an energy storage battery, what does that mean? There are still some holes in that. And this is the process we're going through right now, which is just grueling, <laughs> which is that the Treasury, our IRS, which is our you know our tax uh, agency, is right now taking comments on you know how should we write these regulations? How should we write the forms, yeah. the technical forms by which we make sure that you can get credit for all these technologies, right? And so the private yeah. sector is able to provide lots of detailed comment. I always say to people, send pictures and diagrams because that's the way uh, you know, an accountant would be able to understand what this technology is. If you put in a bunch of engineering gobbledygook, they may not understand it. Um, so the tax writing committee has to, co- I mean, the tax writers, IRS, have to actually come up with all these definitions. So they are relying on comments from the private sector mm-hmm. and from other organizations. Also, of course, from our agencies and our national laboratories who have a lot of technical expertise. So they're turning to them also. But there is a lot of detail that has to be yeah. put in place in order for there to be certainty for investors. It's a bit unfair because the EU got a lot of bashing because we work the other way around. We first come with our very detailed and then comes the money. And then everyone said, look at DS, they come out with this thing. It's clear and there's the money. But that's actually not so simple because you are coming in a second step with the details where you basically define exactly what is eligible. 
right? And yes. only then the money flows. Yeah, and I I always say that the uh, the biggest weakness for policymakers is their lack of imagination, and it's not their fault. It's just because they don't know. Exactly. They don't know. They don't know what's out there. They don't. None of us really necessarily yeah. know. Like what's around yeah. the corner. What what technologies are coming that we haven't thought about. And what you don't want to do is write regulation that is so detailed and so prescriptive yeah. that it yeah. doesn't allow for innovation. Because we're going to see new things. You know, we see new things every day. Uh, come out. And you don't want to exclude something that is an incredibly good idea that could be transformative because you've written something that would not yeah. allow it to participate, right? And you said it's the tax authorities of the US that will have to write these guidelines and they are not even the energy department. So they know right. less about it even, right? Yes, yes. Of course, they're relying a lot on yeah, technical assistance from the agencies, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they also have to enforce all of this. You alluded to that already earlier, that you have to make sure that there's not just an accounting trick or something and that it actually really is uh, is an investment that reduces the emissions, right? That, so um, it's, it's, it's just funny. I always see it from our EU lens that we all said, oh, the US, they make it so much smoother and the EU budget and the EU funding programs, they are so heavy, but it is just the other way around because we have all the, the the details spelling out we have it before we, yes. we and you come it with it afterwards but i think in the end we are it's it's about the same things <laughs> like right. we still you know, have to go through the process right exactly yeah yeah it's super interesting yeah and uh Catherine, you were you were your it's difficult to dig through your profile because there's so many jobs listed but I, it seems to be like at the moment your main occupation is that you work for green finance, right? And innovation for a company. Did I understand that right? Yeah. So my firm is a consultancy. So we only work with clean energy and innovative companies, right? So we work uh, with the folks who are building the National Green Bank. We work with a lot of technology companies that are going to be positively impacted by this legislation. And in fact, we worked very hard to make sure that those provisions were put into the law. So okay. we, we were you know, instrumental in working with policymakers to try to craft those provisions and make sure that they were inclusive and that somebody wasn't inadvertently left out of the mix. Uh, so for good public policy reasons. Okay. Okay. Very good. So you're more working in a policy field then actually, or... Yes, yeah. yes, definitely. We're a public policy okay. uh, yeah. consultancy. I also manage a trade association. I'm executive director of the Advanced Energy Management Alliance. And what we do is just advocate for, and it, again, it's policy, yeah. but it's for distribu distributed energy resources. So I do a lot on edge of grid technologies. I, I've done that throughout my career. Uh, you know, I designed grids uh, at a utility for 10 years. And so I, I have an understanding of how things work on the grid mm -hmm. and you know what from the physics point of view. Um, and so I'm able to bring that. And I worked for a national lab as well on, on the technology side. So I was able, I'm able to bring the technology understanding and knowledge about kind of how things work uh, to understanding how then would policy impact those uh, technologies. And in the US, there is enough political attention to the whole issue of the grids as really one of the big, because um, I, I, in Europe, I wonder whether we have this attention at the moment because we've just massive, massively ramped up our 
our ambition for renewables, you might have heard. Well, I mean, it was already ambitious before. Um, and then, and now since the invasion, we topped up again. So really massive ambition for onshore wind, offshore wind, solar, above all. Uh, but somehow this whole question, how do we follow up with the grids? I mean, you know, how do we get the grids ready for all the heat pumps, for all the, for all the vehicles, for the solar and for the offshore that comes from the big seas, uh, is that is is that the it is in is it present in the in the American discussion? Are you are you happy with the policy focus on it? <laughs> Those are two different questions. <laughs> is it, is it present? One. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's 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 present. Yeah? It's, it's extremely concerning because this is a hundred year old system exactly. that's falling apart. Right? Exactly. And and yours is as you old, know, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so yes, we do need to focus on it more. One of the things I spend a lot of time on is this is very sounds very dorky, but it's on the modeling piece. So when utilities do their planning processes and they say, yeah. okay, here's what we need for the future, for yeah. future load, and here's all the generation we need. And I will tell you that in most circumstances, the answer to every single modeling question is build another natural of gas plant. And That's what they do. So, I'm, yes, so because they get to then amortize it and the customers pay for it. Exactly. And so that's their business model. That's great. Well, the issue is, though, that there's so now that we are going to have much more electrification and that's going to increase really quickly. And I don't think that utilities quite understand the rate at which this yeah. is going to increase because customers have a lot more choices. They're going to have a lot more access to this. And they should not just be considered load. Yeah. The customer should be considered a resource. And so yeah. for forever, I've been working, when I ran the Gridwise Alliance, I said this, I said, supply and demand side should be fungible. Oh you know, God. you should be able to uh, allow the customer yeah. to be a resource as much as the natural gas plant is a resource. And consider that when you're doing your modeling so that you can have very flexible demand and uh, you're able to balance wind and solar from the grid and not even need the natural gas plant. You, know, you put some storage out there and you allow the customer to participate and you have a completely clean system. And that's, of course, been my dream for quite yeah. a long time, yeah. along with other people's dreams. But I think we're, we're not quite there yet because the business models for utilities do not incentivize them to look at life that way. I think we just identified a perfect topic for the EU-US cooperation because we have, exact, we have, similar, pro we have the similar here like the um, I don't know for example to what extent um, you have integrated planning at least for example we have you know we have basically separate gas planning and separate electricity planning and now um, now you have also the electrolyzers and other things and you would have to match the planning also with the EV rollout and all of these things to what extent is it already integrated these sorts of things or is it also like in Europe uh Everyone looks at their part and like you say, I mean, they look what they yeah. need and then I guess they want to be safe. So they, they throw in a bit more and, you, you, you know. Right. <laughs> Let's oversize yeah. this plant too. Of course. Oh, yeah. It's like everybody has their part of the elephant, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we can't, it's very hard to see the whole system. And some of yeah. our, our transmission planning process, they, they'll say, all right, we're only going to include the transmission lines that are utility-based, not ones that are merchant-developed. It's like, well, then you've just <laughs> you've just knocked out a whole sector yeah. of people who are trying to develop transmission in your planning. Yeah. So you do need to think about much more holistically uh, doing that. And the incentives are not necessarily yeah. there. Um, 
from a policy standpoint. However, from a pricing standpoint, that's going to push everything because we're seeing, you know, really volatile pricing in different parts of our country where, um, you know, unfortunately people think, oh, this means that we need to, as I said before, uh, put more gas yeah. online to, <laughs> keep the, to keep that, vol- just make that volatility even greater um, instead of like, let's think about, all right, what if we didn't have this? What if we, what if we tried something completely different? Um, so I think uh, that's, that's something that is going to be a real work in progress. And uh, I agree, it would be good to cooperate. Do you have idea? How would it look like you're an ideal energy infrastructure planning? How would it look like if you could, if you could rule it for, if you could rule the US for a few weeks to set it <laughs> right. up, how would it look like? Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. You'd have to get a lot of people in a room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. With a big table, yeah. with a lot of chess pieces, uh, extra chess pieces. Um, yeah. I think part of it is, you know, modeling, part of it is policy, um, and then, of course, with us, and it, it's the same in the EU, every country, every state has yeah. a different set of policies and different incentives and different political will, right? Yeah. So we have some of our states that are going to 100% clean energy and some other states that say we'll never shut down a coal plant. And that's, you know, that that doesn't make for great holistic planning. Yeah, it's true. I always, always think only we have this EU set up with the, but you also have these states in very different uh, yeah, yeah, it's true. I think the EU has a bad PR because we are all like bashing the EU at the moment. Oh, it's also complicated. And in the end, actually, it it sounds super similar when I hear you talk about how it's set up. Right. And- right. We all have the same, we all have the same problems. Now we just have to come up with some exactly, really good solutions. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That quite neatly brings us on to uh, to my final question, uh, Catherine. And uh, we've seen how politics uh, and different um, political makeup within states, and we've just had the midterms in the US and various uh, national elections here in uh, Europe. We've seen how politics can derail a country's decarbonization efforts and its global standing. Um, Donald Trump recently announced his intention to run for presidency again. Whether he gets it or not is another question entirely. Um, But are you worried, perhaps, that the gains and the momentum that's seemingly been launched under under Biden uh, and under the IRA could be lost again at the next election? Um, And do you think the success of the IRA means politicians of all colours are more closely aligned on energy policy? So for the for the first piece on whether this could be torn down, it, what's interesting to me is that during the last Trump administration, he did not try to take away the solar and wind tax credits. It is really hard to take something away that you have given to someone. Um, and so considering that over two dozen battery plant manufacturing plants have been announced in the Midwest of the U.S., um, to be built. I mean, you're not going to take that away. I, it's, it's 10 years of a policy that I cannot imagine that, um, that the, even if you flip to a Republican president and full Republican Congress, that you're going to have really much desire to do that. Where it will have an impact is on regulations through our EPA, um, so car emission standards through Department of Energy appliance uh, standards, 
um, lead global leadership. You know, there are, that is a huge piece of it. So the executive branch, our president and all of the agencies under the presidency, um, they are aligned now where they are all focused on climate climate mitigation and addressing the climate crisis and a different president may not want to organize them that way. So that does have an impact from a leadership perspective, but it won't have an impact, I think, on the money, on investment and where capital is flowing because capital is going to go. There's a lot of capital out there and it is ready to go to building clean energy and the transition. So I think from that standpoint, we're pretty safe on the statute as it is. Um, on the are we all aligned? No, we are not all aligned. It That is some of my biggest frustration is that um, while there are Republicans who are very concerned about climate and see it impacting their states, for example, Senator Murkowski from Alaska, you know, Alaska towns are going underwater now. Um, and it, you know, she sees it. In fact, she took uh, Joe Manchin, who was the author of the Inflation Reduction Act and a key player in all of that. She, she took him to Alaska to sort of convince him of global warming a few years ago. And he was astounded because he could see it so clearly. So now, he, now he believes in it. Yes, he does. Um, he also believes in natural gas, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so uh, he and he's a Democrat, but so some Republicans do care. Senator Grassley from Iowa. I mean, he's been he has been the biggest proponent of the wind energy credit because Iowa has so much wind and so much potential and has made had so much economic growth as a result of that. But from politics, just cold, hard politics. The Republican Party in the United States is opposed to doing anything on climate. It just is. And um, it's extremely frustrating for those of us who focus on policy and believe everybody should be using the facts um, to guide their policies. You know, there, there are things that they're okay with. They, they, they actually like grid infrastructure. They like working on transmission. They like nuclear power, um, CCS, uh, some geothermal. That's fine. This whole renewable energy thing they think is not good. And it's just, uh, it's extremely frustrating. And just the, the kind of organizing toward dealing with a crisis that while you're dealing with that crisis, you're going to actually grow your economy. Um, that just has not become internalized for them. And do you think it is becoming um, an issue for the electorate? And that's something that definitely I think we've seen in Europe. Um, I know obviously we've got the conflict right on our doorstep and energy prices are increasing and people are worried about paying the bills this winter. So it's becoming a much bigger issue uh, on the doorstep and in the in the voting booth. Is that the same? Can the same be said for American voters? Well, it's an interesting question. I'm I'm not 100% sure of that. So this these mid-year elections, there were sort of in the last month or two, there was a real fear that it would just, the Republicans would just completely win everything and they didn't. Um, and I think what that speaks to is that on a real grassroots level, in communities, in neighborhoods, people are not making decisions based necessarily on the saber rattling uh, on the national level. They're really looking at what is, it, is this impacting my pocketbook on a local level. And so a lot of those folks voted for the Democrats who had helped get Inflation Reduction Act over the finish line, um, who knew that that some of those policies that were put into place under the Biden administration, while they may not like Biden, they may not ever vote for a Democratic president, 
on the local level, they were in a slightly different place. So I think the jury is a little bit out on that. It remains to be seen, but I think the, the elections showed that it's not so black and white. Absolutely. Um, just before we go then, um, Catherine, I'd really be interested to see if you could look into your crystal ball. What do you envision the energy landscape looking like in 10 to 20 years time? Where do you think we can get to? Oh, so I always tell people my crystal ball looks like a bowling ball that is just completely impenetrable. I can't see anything. <laughs> but what I hope for is I hope that all of these incredible technologies that are being incentivized now in the US, but also in the EU and elsewhere, um, are really able to be put to use in areas that are really being hit the hardest by the climate crisis and that will be able to help some of those folks who would who would be climate refugees really be able to find solutions at home so they won't have to uproot themselves, but that so that they will have solutions where they are so they can continue to have community and culture where they are. Um, that's my hope for the next 10 or 20 years is that we'll really find some ways to finance those and to deploy those technologies in a way that really help everybody. Yes, I hope so too. Um, before we go for the before we go then, um, I'd like to go around the table and ask what caught my eye uh, in the news this week, something about the energy transition that really made you uh, sit up and pay attention. Michaela, what caught your eye this week? I have to pick something on heat pumps just to do good for Jan's absence. I'm pretty sure he would have picked that one this week. It's the IEA's report, big, uh, big report on the status of heat pumps. Mm. And I have to admit, I haven't read it myself. I only have read like tweets that people wrote that read it. And I think it's, it, it's it, I mean, this heat pump technology and how it is about to disrupt the market, I think is very, very, very well described. And I, what I took from one tweet was that by 2030 in Europe, the heat pumps all together could, could basically displace amounts of gas that we imported through winter through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. So that's just the you know, predicted growth rates until 2030. That's how much they would help us to replace, which I think is phenomenal, uh, that the solution is there, you know, as bad as the situation is, that, but that we have something at hand already that we can implement. Um, That's incredible. I can't wait to read it. And, and you think about heat pump water heaters too. If you can replace the heating and water yeah. heating, that would be incredible. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That would be amazing. Um, I'm going to quickly jump in there, uh, Catherine, because my what my is also uh, heat pump related. Uh, we doubled up uh, in the absence of Jan, uh, and it's the announcement by the Scottish government um, to provide uh, grants of up to seven and a half thousand uh, pounds to households uh, wanting to install uh, heat pumps in Scotland. So, um, just something that the the Scottish government, the devolved Scottish government, is doing in, in supporting. The, the rollout of heat pumps uh, in Scotland. So I think really, really interesting uh, initiative there and hopefully it could be replicated elsewhere. This is the year of the heat pump a little bit, huh? It, apparently, maybe 2023 will be, yeah. yeah. Maybe that's something we can look forward to. I got into one myself. I replaced oh, a gas unit wow. with a heat pump. Muzzle off. Really, this year? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm feeling very <laughs> superior right now. Very good. <laughs> was, it, was it an easy process in the US? How was it? 
No, no, it was not an easy process. And I did not get a rebate for this particular one. So I should have waited, but that's okay. That's the problem when you're an avant-garde, like you were a podcast Mm -hmm. avant-garde, you know? Ahead of the curve, ahead of the curve. Uh, Catherine, what cool your eye this week? Ah, so um, I get The New Yorker. I've gotten it since college, mostly to read uh, the movie reviews and look at the cartoons. But but this uh, episode, this uh, November 28th edition of The New Yorker is their climate edition. And they have a really good piece by Elizabeth Colbert, who writes about climate quite a bit. And it's um, called A Vast Experiment, and it goes through the climate crisis from A to Z. And she has little vignettes that represent different letters of the alphabet um, about technology, about policy, about positions people are taking on climate. It's just really interesting. They're not hard to read and digest. So if you don't have a whole afternoon to read an article, which I usually never do, um, this will give you just some bits and pieces to read. And I think uh, I, I think it's really interesting and worth looking at. That sounds fascinating. Absolutely. We'll definitely uh, put a link out to that uh, I'm a big fan of The New Yorker. I've uh, read a few of their articles over the years. Not a dedicated reader, as you say. Don't have the time to uh, delve into some of the articles. But yeah, some really interesting stuff coming out of there. And that sounds fascinating. And a whole issue on climate, which is great. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to Catherine and Michaela and our producer, Anna. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Catherine? I'm on at Clean Grid View. And Michaela? At Citizen Sane One. If you have any questions for the team, you can tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to What Matters. 